Welcome to the Fit for Fitness podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Davis, owner of Davis Fitness Method here in Seattle, Washington. This podcast is your resource for reliable fitness information. This information has been sourced from studies, experts, and real-world application from training with my clients and my own body. We're here to help you enhance your life by giving you practical takeaways that you can use today so that your energy, mood, and mindset begin to change right away. So let's not waste any more time. Let's jump into this episode. All right. So in this episode, we're joined by Cody McBroom. He's the founder and CEO of The Tailored Coaching Method. It's a lifestyle, training, and nutrition coaching company. In this podcast, we cover his unique approach to coaching where he blends an evidence-based and emotionally intelligent approach. He's had massive success with his clients and in his business, he helps us to understand how we can begin to apply that thought process in our own lives. So with all that, let's get into it. I I love the topic in general because I think that, I don't know, so many people now, because I even think about, I mean, like how long have you been doing this, man? It's probably pretty similar to me. I started in 2010, so like 12 years. Yeah, Yeah, it's been a minute, right? Yeah. If somebody told you in 2010, like, is that evidence-based? You'd be like, what the fuck does evidence-based mean? I was doing LL Cool J's Platinum Workout. So, <laughs> <laughs> so point being, right. we we used other people's experience. You know what I mean? If it wasn't, like, celebrities or famous people, and, I, you know, you probably after that started getting into the weeds of things, obviously. You go to people like Dave Tate. Uh, Louis Simmons, uh, even like in the bodybuilding world, John Meadows, Christian Thibodeau, like they're just doing shit. Now I look back and I'm like, are those people science-based? I would say, yeah, like they understand this, the principles of science, especially when we look at like progressive overload and um, pr- progressive resistance. Um, uh, what is it? The gas, uh, 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 something adaptive syndrome. But like point being is uh there's certain elements of science that were back then still, but people didn't glorify evidence. They didn't glorify research. It wasn't like, well, if there isn't a research paper on that specific method, I don't trust it. And I feel yeah. like that's where a lot of it is gone. And as of late, especially, I've been trying to publicly give it some pushback. I think for a long time, I kind of naturally did, but it was, uh, I was almost like insecure, not insecure, but kind of afraid in a way to, to come out publicly and be like, I don't care that that's not evidence-based or like, I'm doing this because I know it works regardless of what evidence says, whether yeah. there's none on it or there's some against it. But now I just, you know, I'm at a point where I'm like, man, number one, I just don't care what people have to say to an extent. Um, number two, if, if I'm seeing it help people, that's why I do what I do. So who cares? Um, and number three, at the end of the day, like there's, there's just not enough. The more you actually learn about research, the more you realize there's never going to be enough research to prove everything. And there's never going to be a perfect study. Mm-hmm. So, even in some of the stuff that I do that isn't quote unquote completely backed by science, I would argue that I don't even think you can do the perfect study to give me the answer I need, whether it's the, the sample size of people, the types of people you're taking through it, the duration of the study, the things you're met, like there's just so many things and that's not a shot to researchers. Their job is fucking hard, but you can't create a perfect study. Right. You know? So, right. And so with each person that you have in front of you, it's kind of like your own, version of said study right Mm -hmm. like so when you have somebody and you know maybe they're like i want to try this thing and you might be getting like you're like okay well like we know that this kind of aligns more with what we know is Mm evidence-based 
but I'm willing to give that a shot. Like, when, is there are there times where you're like, it's this actually just doesn't really make sense to even try out. Yeah. Versus like, we actually know that this is mm-hmm. going to be the best thing for you. Yeah, I think uh, like a good a good way to look at that too is like even like calories in versus calories out. That's like gravity, you know. <laughs> to a certain extent, you're just like, yeah, like this method I think works. There's not a lot of research to prove that this thing does what I think does. However, as long as it's not going against the clearly defined scientific principle of calories in versus calories out, is what it is, you know? So a lot of people with intermittent fasting, for example, people were pushing that and they were trying to like find reasons why it worked outside of it just was like, you're skipping breakfast and that cuts calories. Ultimately, that's what's going on here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But that's even like, that's a good point too, is like, I'll use intermittent fasting with somebody if it allows them to adhere to the scientific principle better. You know, it's even like uh, the the muscle and strength pyramids. And this isn't a shot at that because I think Eric Helms did a great job with that. It was one of the things that really got me into a lot of the evidence-based stuff. Um, But I've been asked often, like, do you agree with that? And I'm like, I agree with it theoretically, but I can't tell you how many times me dialing in somebody's meal timing or nutrient timing, which is way above macros, micros, calories, is the only way I got them to actually adhere to their macros that I wanted them to adhere to are the calories, right? Mm-hmm. If I didn't dial that routine in, which was focused on nutrient timing, they wouldn't hit the calories. Right. Or in another regard, um, sometimes, it, do you ever miss like the, when you first got into lifting, how much shit you thought was doing things that wasn't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> It's like exciting, right? Like there was something cool about that. Yeah, there was actually I was just I was just having a conversation with Tris about this. I was like, dude, sometimes it's just about the magic. <laughs> and it's like it like it might not do anything, but it kind of makes it feel special and it like like pre-workout. Mm-hmm. I'm like it's kind of just about the magic and setting the ritual and it's like I get into this thing by doing this and it's, it's it might be weird, but Yeah. Hundred percent. Well, and and you know, for people, the art of coaching to an extent uses that as a way to trick people into what actually works. You know, so if if me laying out this myth, mythical meal timing thing gets you hyped up and gets you to adhere to your calories, which is really what is science based and what I want you to do, then I'm winning. You know, it's not that's not a negative thing, but like the science gurus who aren't in the trenches actually working with people will never allow that to be okay. You know what I'm saying? So. Right. Um, and I can think of a lot of scenarios where to me that makes sense. I can even think of like, so diet breaks, for example, this was one that I've gave a lot of pushback to because all this research came out that just showed it is purely psychological. There's absolutely zero physiological changes in there. There was a little bit of research to show, uh, muscle endurance improved. So I guess that's physiological cause that's like physical mm-hmm. attributes, but it's obvious you restore glycogen for a full week. You're going to be able to crank out more reps. Yeah. I would also say if you did, if you, if you did a six month diet, which is longer than the study that found this, and you used a diet break every third week, and it allowed you to squeeze out more reps and not gain more weight because you controlled the level of intake. I mean, to me, that's going to lead to more muscle retention at the end of it or muscle growth potentially, recomp, right? But we don't have long enough studies. Um, there was the one where it was like 5-2 diets. So it was like five days on, two days off, and the two-day refeed group retained more muscle tissue, but then people bounced back at it and were like, well... If you're doing the bod pod, it's just sensing more water because you're doing the bod pod after the refeeds. Mm. Totally true. So you can't really say it retain more muscle. However, muscle is 65% water. So if we're more consistently fueling the muscle with more water, it's probably going to train harder, train better, recover better. Like you're going to be less likely to get injured, less better recovery, less cramps. Like, I don't know. That to me is going to lead to more muscle retention. Um, 
if we just go by what is defined in research, we can't say that. But if we just think about it, practically speaking, it's probably what's going to happen. Mm. Um, and then the other thing with the whole diet break situation too is like, there was an interesting study on uh, the placebo effect. And I, I fucking love placebo studies. But they, there's a few different ones. One was uh, an aerobic study. So we, everybody has an aerobic gene. That's why some people are just great at endurance sport. Um, doesn't mean you're going to be the best. It just means you're more likely to progress with that <clears throat> than someone who doesn't. But they took all these people in the study. They test their aerobic capabilities with the test. And then they did the gene factor. They took all the people who had the gene, told them they didn't. Took all the people who didn't have the gene, told them they did. And the test results switched when they retested them, like later on. So they started training them, then they retested them. The people who actually didn't have the gene, but were told to have the gene, did better and improved, and they did better than the group that did have the gene that was told they didn't. Because their mind just shifted, and they automatically assumed, like, either I'm going to be great at this or I'm not. Um, and they did the same thing with the milkshake. They, two groups had the same uh, milkshake, calories-wise. One group said it was, like, 200 calories. One was, like, 600 calories. Everybody had a 400-calorie milkshake. And it was, like, 210 and 617, but, like, Roughly speaking, two, four, six, right? Um, the group that was told they had the 600-calorie shake, their literal hunger hormones changed after drinking the shake. So leptin, ghrelin, metabolism, all these things shifted, and they reported less hunger, less cravings, more satiety after drinking the shake, whereas the group that had the lower-calorie shake did not see those same changes and was still hungry and not satiated after the shake, even though they had the same amount of calories. So like the way we think can literally change things in our body. And the reason I'm saying all this is because if I have somebody who needs a diet break, I think physiologically, because they're stressed the fuck out, mm -hmm. they're a mom with three kids, they're training five days a week, they're in the pursuit of a fat loss phase, all of which, again, you won't find in a study because studies are using usually college kids who have no responsibilities. So like how much is that applicable? I mean, it is still, but you got to consider these things, right? In the trenches, it's just different. Yeah. And so if I tell this person, we're going to take a diet break and I believe it's going to help you because I think it's going to reduce cortisol. I think if we reduce cortisol and stress hormones, we are going to see a byproduct of other hormones improving or kind of having more of like a protective insurance policy, so to speak. So we can help your thyroid, help all these things. Um, and maybe I'm like walking on a brand, you know, I'm like reaching with this, but I can almost guarantee this person's going to see better changes because they believe it too, because your mind is going to shift, right? Yeah. So some people will listen to that and be like, so you're basically lying. <laughs> no. Um, in a way, you could interpret it that way. But again, like if you look at the research, like I just, I can't fully grab onto the idea that a diet break is purely psychological. Mm -hmm. If they're using clientele that is far different from what, like I don't think those people typically have hormonal issues, right? And if you look at Matador, again, they didn't see any real hormonal changes. Those people, those were obese sedentary individuals before the study. So like, Again, we're not talking about a person who just wants to lose the last 10 pounds of weight, has a high-stress job, has multiple kids, is training their fucking ass off. Like, they have a lot of stress in their body. I got to imagine things change. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, um, a little bit of a rant, but I think, I, I think it's just context is so specific. Right. You know what we're saying? Do you th so, I mean, given the fact that we have, like, this body of research out there, do you think there's something that somebody can do that is optimal for them that maybe doesn't line up exactly with the science because it's like, you're talking about, okay, this gets them to adhere. This gets them to commit for longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. Can somebody still get optimal results without having like exactly lined up with the science or what is um, deemed hundred percent evidence-based or is there some room for interpretation in some of those things? 
I think so. I think that, so I think a good example for that would be, um, if we look at like progressive overload in RIR separately, but in the same situation. So for example, we know that if you do uh, basically like at the end of the day, whether you're training for six reps or eight reps or 12 reps or whatever, I mean, you're probably going to build the same amount of muscle as long as you reach a certain proximity of failure. Right. Um, we also know that intensifiers, so supersets and drop sets and pulses or partials or half reps or anything like that is most likely not that beneficial based on research because it lowers your volume, right? When I do those, it increases metabolic muscular fatigue too quickly. And then I can't do as much volume Mm -hmm. by the end of the day. And that's going to lead to less results. However, like if we do it in real world setting, those might be the only way that people actually reach a significant reps in reserve, right? right? Or a a certain proximity. Somebody might not have even been close. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's common, dude. I started doing this with a lot of my clients where um, they have four sets of lunges or squats or I usually try to avoid a zero RIR on back squats and shit like that, unless it's like a brand new person, but I feel confident their form because I know they're just not actually going to get there. But I would start doing a, a descending RIR. So it'd be like set one is three, set two is two, set three is one, and then set four, you're going to failure. And watching the weights lifted and like the awareness people were gaining from it was just crazy because they were like, holy shit, I did a zero RAR and I got 15 reps with the same weight I did for 10 reps on a three RAR on the first set. This doesn't make sense. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, it's because you just didn't realize how close you were to failure. So sometimes you have to use those intense fires or going to failure, which again is like stay three reps away from failure. I can't buy into that because right. if you work with real people in the real world, like, that's just not the case. Yeah. So I think this is where, like, that's a perfect situation of, like, am I defying the laws of science? No. It's just that a a study is so insanely controlled that they can ensure that, for a fact, this person knows how to go to failure. We're going to gauge their proximity to failure. They eliminate the variables that could change it. Haven't they done studies where they're, like, most people... 100%. 100%. Don't, don't accurately gauge yep. how far they are from failure. Exactly. Yeah. So when they do studies on actual RIR showing that you can get the same amount of growth, let's say, or strength from, and strength I would say is different than hypertrophy for sure. There's more research to support going to failure for hypertrophy is better than strength. Absolutely. Because it's neurological. Yeah. The strength is. And it's a skill. Like the skill of the movement. Exactly. Itself, the technique of the movement itself. Like yep. trying to fucking snatch to fail. Yeah. To failure. Makes no like, sense. What? taking a muscle to failure is, is a part of growth is taking it to exhaustion. Right. So like, um, but when they do those studies, they typically, they vet people. So they make sure that they either train these people to learn how to use RIR properly, or they've gone through the right prerequisites to assume they can, but they've done studies on people who had no prerequisites prior. And they go, uh, the one I am very familiar with is they put 10, they're 10 rep max on the bar for a bench press and they have a spotter and they're like, Hey, you're going to go to failure, put your 10 rep max on here. Um, and I want to say there's one person who, who got like eight. So there was like one person who was overzealous. Everybody else was, uh, I think the, the mean average was 16 reps and there was somebody as high as 26. Oh shit. Yeah. So out of the group, if the average was 16, it was supposed to be a 10 rep. It just shows you that people don't really know what is failure. Grant, these people had a spotter. So it was like for the first time they could actually really go balls of all failure, but that would also mean if they if they truly understood RIR, then they would have got eleven, right? Right, because the eleventh they would have failed, and they would have had to have help from the spot because their ten rep max would have been their ten rep personal by themselves max, right? But it wasn't. So um, nobody it, hit ten. No, 
Okay. No, I, and, out of the entire group. Like I said, I think there was one person that only hit eight, so I think they like right. overestimated. Right. Um, but what from what I know, um, what, there was a lot of participants in it. But the average was sixteen. I know that in the highest was twenty six. There might have been in within that a couple people who hit ten. But if the average is sixteen, we know that the vast majority went way over. And if somebody's in fucking twenty six, um, and it, it's also I would even say going to failure is a skill mm-hmm. in anything because anybody listening, like if you've ever said. Uh, yeah, I've done like my one rep max and failed. That's different than doing a 10 rep max failure. It's different than a 20 rep max failure. Yeah. It's different than doing an assault bike for 10 seconds to max effort failure. You know what I mean? Like they're all different. Right. It's different than a box jump max effort. Like that's not even really to failure. It's just a, like how high can you fucking jump? Yeah. And you might fail, but right. it's not like failure through exhaustion. It's failure through power. Um, it's failure through aerobic endurance. It's, you know what I mean? So, um, it's different. I did a certification where I had to test a bunch of different things. And the assault bike was the one that was the hardest for me to really get because mm-hmm. they had a formula that actually broke down. Like if you're actually going to failure, your heart rate should be at a certain point. And I couldn't get my heart rate to that point at failure for me within this like certain bout of, of intensity, oh, shit. which really like it took me a while to get, but really it was just, I was too mentally uncomfortable with going to that place on the assault bike. Cause I'd mm-hmm. probably throw up or right. I'm just, I'm not a CrossFitter. I fucking hate the assault bike for max effort. So right. it's like, I just couldn't do it. But so when you're, um, when you're thinking about, okay, like this might not line up with the science, but I feel like this would be best for this person. Like, what is the thought process behind that? So like in, in the instance where you're like, oh, this person, like if we do a diet break with them or this other person, it's like, Hey, if we do intermittent fasting with them, they might actually constrain their calories. What's the thought process behind that? How do you know that that's something that might work out with them in the long term? Is it iterative? Is it, it's not like definitive, like, okay, this is what you're going to do for this amount of time. Or it's like, we're going to try it for this amount of time. See how we feel. Yeah. Like what's the approach there? I mean, obviously it depends on, it depends on what the thing is that we're trying to implement, obviously. Um, and I try to make sure that people understand why still. So even like it, it, intermittent fasting, for example, I will still tell them like, this isn't magic. You right. know, I'm not going to lie, but I will base it on, you know, have they done this in the past? Did it work? Didn't it work? If it didn't, why didn't it work? If it did, why did it work? Um, how do you, like, how like how hungry are you in the morning? How hungry are you at night? Like, what is your schedule? Like, all these different things. And then present them with two pathways. And this is like motivational interviewing. It's, it's uh, for any coaches listening, it's a, an amazing thing to study. But giving somebody two paths to choose from is always going to lead to better adherence and success with them. Because they're deciding, they're committing, and it's their choice. Versus if I tell them to do X, Y, Z, they're going to be more likely to be resistant. Now, mm-hmm. some people, if you're a good coach and marketer, you have the no like, and trust factor, right? So if I tell you to do something within a coaching setting, and I've accomplished a good relationship with you, you're probably going to listen and do it and be successful with it. However, I still double down on this motivational interviewing path where I might say, I, if I truly believe intermittent fasting is the right path, I might tell you, that's one of the paths and here's the other path. And I might stack the pros on this one a little bit heavier, kind of persuade you a little bit more without you realizing, cause I want you to choose that path. And I know that's the better path. Both will work based on research, but this is probably gonna be the best one for you. And I know that, and I want you to choose it. Cause I know if you choose it on top of it being the best one, your adherence is going to be higher with the best plan for you based on what I know. Mm. Um, so it, it, it really depends. It's so hard to say. Cause in, in with training, it's the same thing. It's like, um, Honestly, I, th- I think it, 
a big part of art of coaching is this, but like a big piece of it is just asking the right questions. You know, mm. what are you, what are you into? And, and like every week when you get an update, like seeing what they got excited about, seeing what they liked, seeing what they were, um, and, and building awareness. Like I have a, I'm going to share it on my story today. Um, <laughs> the first thing in his update, he said, uh, I'm going to title this week, the blow your fucking mind week. And I was like, well, this is a good start, right? Or reverse dieting. And, uh, and he was like, he listed all the things that he was feeling from the reverse, better pumps, better vascularity, his joints weren't hurting as much, better hydration, all these things, uh, much of which he's probably heard me say, much of which I've kind of hinted at him will happen as we reverse because I want to create a positive pathway going into this reverse because a lot of people are resistant to it. And now he's noticing more of those things. So this isn't like placebo, like he's only yeah. getting pumps because I said he was going to, yeah. but like he's noticing them more because I pointed them out before they happened. And yeah. now he's like, his awareness is like waiting for these things. And then when he starts getting the, a better pump from it and seeing more vascularity, he's like, holy shit, this is working. Right. And then he probably trains harder, squeezes the dumbbell harder, gets a better pump, gets better results. You know, it just stacks. Mm -hmm. So, um, again, I think sometimes it's, it's when I see that now I can lean into that more. So if somebody is, is hyped up about some drop set or partials, or they felt something significant in a certain movement, I'm going to just like, we're going to go that route. Even if like science says this other exercise is better, like biomechanics would tell me that everybody's going to have a different exercise selection, right. but I'm going to lean on what they've told me. Um, and that'll dictate a lot of it. Again, I think it has to boil down to like, I'm never going to put something into a nutrition plan that tries to defy the law of thermodynamics, calories in versus calories out. But if I can pick apart the things that are maybe more like not evidence-based, more like, I don't want to say pseudoscience or guru ish because I hate yeah. those two things, but more like in the trenches, like there's nothing to back this up, but I've seen it work. Like if I can put those things in, it's going to help. It's going to help. Like even I think of this all the time with uh, like clean foods. Everybody hates like, you know, you got to be flexible yeah. and stuff. Anybody who follows a diet that has way more clean foods, they get better results. They get leaner. Like it's just a fact. Now, is it because the calories of a sweet potato are superior than the calories of something like white bread? No, but like the more processed something is, yeah, the less micronutrients are in it. People will kind of try to double down on that, but I would say it's probably not going to affect your body composition enough to lean on that. But the fact is the more processed something is, the more likely it is that the food label is inaccurate and therefore your calories and your macros are inaccurate. Mm -hmm. So people will double down on this idea of all calories, you can lose weight on any type of food because of the calories and that's right. However, if we go into the real world, like what's actually happening when people eat a bunch of processed foods? Right. So, um, Maybe you know a, a little bit more about this, but if something goes through a certain amount of processing, wouldn't you be more likely to ab absorb more of the calories from something that is more refined than something that is less refined or less processed? So, like, if you had a sweet potato, mm -hmm. 100 cal quote unquote, 100 calories of sweet potato and 100 calories of white bread, are you absorbing the same amount from both? I, I don't know of any research that would. The hard part there is that, like, typically the less fiber in one, right? There's less fiber in the other. Well, and in the less refined something is, less processed something is. Typically, the more micronutrients are actually in there, right? And like sometimes they fortify things like white bread and stuff with nutrients. So, do you absorb more of it? Maybe, but is there more present in the other one? Maybe. So does it bounce out? Probably. Okay. Right. And then the other side of it too is, is, and there is research to prove this that the thermic effect of food is greater with unprocessed food. So with something that's highly processed, and this makes sense, it's it is more refined. There's less work to be done in, as far as mm. digestion goes, and part of digestion requires calories. So your thermic effect of food, how many calories you burn digesting food, lowers the more processed foods you have. So for people listening. 
this is not something where you're like, I can only eat paleo foods because I'm going to burn so many more calories. Right. It's not that great. It's not that significant. Um, but do they see that because digestion is greater with this food, so it takes longer to absorb everything. Therefore, they can't actually say that it, you know, you absorb as much at the beginning. I don't know. But um, we also know that uh, food labels can be 20 to 25% off. So anything that's processed now has a food label on it. Sweet potato, pa- uh, apple, steak. They don't really have food labels on it. Like you got to find yeah. your best accurate thing. But when you're weighing those food, measuring those food, they're more likely to be more accurate. Um, anything in a box, anything from a restaurant, anything that's processed is less likely to be accurate from a macros perspective. Mm-hmm. So the inconsistencies increase compared to something else. Gotcha. So that doesn't necessarily mean that whole foods are better, but it means that somebody who's eating predominantly like bro foods or whole foods, meal plan style stuff, is probably going to be more accurate, mm. you know? So, so, so I guess from the flexible standpoint, like it would make more sense if you're trying to be flexible to eat more of the unprocessed foods, but if you ate consistently, like, like, let's say on the flexible side mm-hmm. in the packaging, whatever, you know that this could be inaccurate, but it's not like if I eat 50 grams of, uh, I don't know, fucking cereal that it's going to be different. If I pull a f- pour a 50 gram bowl the next time. Exactly. Right. So if, as long as I'm consistent with that thing, I can, I mm-hmm. at least have some form of tracking that. Thing. Yeah. And there's, there's even, there's even, so like one of the things against being too flexible would be, um, when we, we introduce more highly palatable foods, obviously we crave more. They're, they're less satiable from a nutrient perspective and there's combinations of fat, salt, carb. These things do trigger more cravings, so on and so forth. Um, so can you eat highly palatable foods and still lose weight as long as they fits in your calories? hundred percent. And they have research to show that, but are you more likely to eat overeat? Probably like that's pretty well documented yeah. as well. Um, however, there's also research show, even with highly palatable foods, if you eat the same highly palatable food every single fucking day, you actually lower that yeah. desire to overeat. So cereal, for example, which can be a great pre or post-workout meal, especially if you use like vanilla protein powder for the milk. Right. If you're doing the same one every day, of course. Um, I think the problem becomes when we go like Monday's Fruit Loops, Tuesday's Cookie Crisp, you know what I mean? Like you're just <laughs> shifting through them. Yeah. Um, and you're just eating too much of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I do think it can cause problems. I would even, man, I even think of like protein bars, protein bars can be considered healthy. They got protein. There's nothing crazy in there, but I'm never, I can eat two in a row and I'm still not really satiated. But if I have a, uh, an apple and a chicken breast with some barbecue sauce and broccoli, I'm way more satiated and it's just as many calories, if not more or less, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to say, but that's that's another example of like, well, research definitely proves that flexible dieting works, but I think there's there's value in being a little bit more rigid when we have a very serious goal. Right. Because I've just seen people like they just it's more accurate, they're more satiated, their energy's better, digestion's better, they feel better. Right. Um and flexible dieting is an easy thing to take overboard. They're probably like less inflamed and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it I think there's a balance to be had, obviously, and and you know, I still practice flexible dieting, but for me, it's it's very much like kind of what you were saying. Like, um, like I love ketchup, so I put ketchup on my eggs. It's Heinz. It's not like some organic tomato oh paste. I like oh Heinz God, ketchup. Heinz. Yeah, <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. You know, there's probably highly yeah. fructose corn syrup or some shit yeah. in there. But but I use it every day. I use the same amount every day, and I put it on my fucking egg white slash whole egg scramble with spinach and mushrooms. You know what I mean? Like yeah. super clean meal with some of that. Like, yeah. To me, that's flexible dieting, and then okay. But again, everybody's different. Some people can have one Oreo at night and that's like, that's all I need. Just one, yeah. one Oreo. Yeah. But if, if you know that's not you, just admit yeah. it and just don't do it. Like, yeah, I do. Um, so there, there's, there, there are times where, um, 
I'm kind of like, you know, you're going to have to face the animal. Mm-hmm. And when, when I say that, I mean like yourself and yeah. it's like you, but not you. It's the hungry you, the less like willpower driven you. Like, so if you're like, I don't, I don't really prep my foods. I kind of just, you know, I'm, I'm flexible dieting all the way through. I end up in the scenario and this is, this is kind of how it always goes. It's like, I kind of ended up in the scenario where I didn't really have my food prepped and like, this was all I had. And then I, ended up eating more of it mm-hmm. and it was like well you kind of set yourself up there yeah yeah, yeah. at the end of the day like the old saying um uh, if you if you fail to plan you plan to fail yeah it's just so true and that's part of why even with flexible dieting it's like okay well if you're gonna have a flexible diet add the food into your my fitness bubble four right or people say like what do you do when you travel it's like if i'm traveling for work it's different than with family obviously right but and in I should make this specific too. Like for people listening, if you're constantly traveling with family, then it, and you have a serious fat loss goal, it probably shouldn't be different. No. Um, I I've been doing this for over a decade. I can stay lean pretty easily, and I can be mindful. So I think it, it's definitely a different. Like you can't compare apple right. to apple here. Um, but like, and I rarely ever travel with family. But like when I go for work, I'm just like, okay, well, where am I staying at? Like, where are we doing like the event? Where's the like spots to eat and stuff? Like when I spoke in Austin was the last place I spoke at and I was staying with me and Brad shared a room. Um, actually he failed to book anything until the last minute. It was like, yo, can I crash the, I was like, all right, bro. But it's like, all right, where are we going to dinner? Cause I was in the middle of a cut for my photo shoot. Right. So it's like, I'm just going to look up the nearest steakhouse. I'm going to look up where the nearest grocery store is. I'm going to stock the fridge in the hotel. Like mm. it's really not that fucking hard. I did it in the terminal. It took me 15 minutes. You know what I mean? It's, it's really not that crazy. That is flexible dieting. I tried to eat as healthy as I could, yeah. but I was traveling. But the point is, I planned ahead. Right? Have you had Otis. Have you had clients where it, they know they know they're traveling, or they're they're going to be in a work event, and work provides the food, and always for the work event, um, it's never the food that they expect is going to be there. It's always bad food. So mm-hmm. it's like they're like, I I almost know it's not going to be what I want it to be when I go there. Mm-hmm. Have you had situations yeah. where that comes? A lot, actually, because uh, I have a bunch of people in WWE, and mm. the food's always catered, and you think something like that would provide a bunch of healthy food. Yeah. They don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, like, a few healthy options, but here's here's what I would say to most people, and this is, I've even had people that are in, like, the tech world and people mm. like that, too. Um, there's, a, there's a few things with this. Like, number one, this isn't always, like, this isn't a blanket statement. It's not black and white like this, but 90% of the time, like, Companies are trying to be health conscious for people because everybody and their mother has a fucking peanut allergy or is gluten intolerant or thinks they do have something, you know, yeah. or they're vegan or whatever it may be. So they're constantly having all these other options. So people are like, there's never anything healthy. It's just not the thing they want to eat. Exactly. Yeah. No, there is. You just, you're just making an excuse. Um, the other thing is people are too embarrassed to ask ahead yeah. when it's as simple as emailing HR who granted you, they probably won't be there. Um, they probably just coordinate the event. Um, you probably won't ever talk to them again. You probably won't ever see them again. And even if you do, who cares? Being healthy is very fucking cool. They're like not I think gonna be like, that's the person that asked me what was on the menu. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nobody actually thinks losing weight or getting healthy is stupid. Everybody is just honestly, like it really boils down to everybody. I did a video about this too. People have an insecurity about their ability to be disciplined and create willpower enough for themselves to accomplish what you're after. So when you're after something, they might throw hate at you Mm. because they're not doing it. Right. So then you shy away from speaking about it and you just say, fuck it, eat whatever's there because you don't want them to know that you're trying to lose weight because you don't want them to give you shit. Meanwhile, if you just realize that they're giving you shit because they're insecure about their own body and health and they can't discipline themselves like you can, 
you can actually go into that situation going, damn, I feel bad for this person. Mm. So when they throw you shade, you don't even, it doesn't even phase you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think part of it is that, like, they're afraid to speak up. And the other part of it is they just give in to temptation. So, like, um, I, I can even think about this. Literally, last night was 4th of July, mm-hmm. right, as we're recording this. And my wife was cooking stuff. My dad was coming over. Like, the neighbors kind of pop in and out. So she was, like, you know, chips and guac. And usually chi- guac in front of me, man. <laughs> for real? It's going down. Okay. Um, and, and for whatever reason, I love Mexican beer, too. So the combo there is, like, this is not good. But I just got back from Vegas, you know. And then after Vegas, Saturdays are date nights. So we were going to kind of avoid it. But then I was like, no, I want to put something together that's special. I usually don't drink two nights in a row. So I did. And I, like, tried to manage my diet pretty well. But I definitely overate a little bit. So I was trying to pull back. And then Sunday I was good and started feeling better. And then Monday is 4th of July, mm. you know. It was in front of me. But I was like, you know what? Like, I'm hungry. And dinner's pushed out later than normal because we're waiting on my dad and all yeah. this stuff. We're going to eat somewhat healthy, but I just got to wait. And right. I did. I didn't touch a fucking chip. I didn't touch a beer because I just waited. Right. And I, like, at the end of the day, it, it was hard. It required discipline, but I had to constantly remind myself. And a lot of people just go, oh, fuck it. It's holiday. Right. They give in. So a, a big piece of it is, is like, you know, it's not because I'm more motivated than you. It's because I'm more disciplined than you. And it's not like this cool high horse thing. It's just that the more you train discipline and willpower, the better you get at it. You right. know what I mean? And because there's really only healthy food in my house outside of, like, fucking little unicorn cookies and shit that my daughter wants to eat that I just don't like that doesn't, you know, get me. Um, I don't have to use my willpower all the time. Mm. So if you remove a lot of it, you don't have to use it. So when this situation comes up, I'm like, I'm good. Like I can stay strong. And then we served dinner and we had like, we, we didn't do like the typical fourth side barbecue because even my wife's like, I kind of want to just eat normal, but she did make like this. uh, It was like a roasted peach goat cheese pecan salad right healthy ingredients yeah. all the all stuff fat bomb you know right. pecans and goat cheese like <laughs> and, and so like that's another example most people would be like oh well I'll just choose the choose the healthy option it's like no i literally was like just cook me two chicken breasts instead of one tonight i'm gonna go over my protein intake but i would rather make that decision than go over my fats right normally if i didn't just go to vegas i would have been like fuck it it's fourth right. of july let me have a beer have whatever but I think that's a big piece of it too is like you go to this like luncheon at a work event and there's all these options and some of them look good. Some of them don't. Yeah. And the only reason they don't is because you have the other options around you. But if you had the healthy options at home, normally you would choose those because it does look good. But when you compare that to the whatever is on the other side of the buffet that they're serving you, like, yeah, it doesn't look as good. So, so two things. Um, One, I kind of wanted to jump in what you said about like when people are like, Oh, they see you doing something and how you... Have you heard of Brene Brown? Mm-hmm. Okay. So what that person could be experiencing is a shame spiral. So they're like, their way of processing you doing your diet thing, because you talking about diet food or, mm-hmm. or diet food, uh, you talking about dieting could bring awareness to how they feel about themselves. Mm-hmm. And then that process could send them into some sort of shame spiral. And their way of processing shame might be attacking other people. Yeah. It's like a defense mechanism. Right, right. And it's not necessarily that they're like really wanting to attack you. It's just like they're feeling the shame and they're kind of like, ah, like. Yeah. That could be their way of processing And subconsciously to them, you're causing that shame. Right. Even though you're not shaming them for. Right. Trying to eat healthy. Yeah. Like one example that she made in the book was like this woman uh, gets an invitation to a kid's birthday party that's going to be at a pool. And automatically she's sent into a shame spiral because she's like, I don't like the way that I look in a bathing suit. Mm-hmm. And so like her husband's like trying to like 
talk to her or something like that. And she like, just like shuts him out and then like goes upstairs and locks herself in a room. Mm -hmm. And if you're the, if you're the husband sitting there, you're kind of like, what the fuck did I do? Yeah. And and in in reality, you didn't do anything similar thing. It's like, you didn't mean to set this person off, but you might be doing that. And so uh, that, that was one thing. Um, and then like the other thing I was going to ask was as it pertains to, making good decisions. Like I know your process is to like educate your clients on like what is in what. And uh, like one of the early things is like you categorize things. Like you're like, these things contain more fat. Like oftentimes these foods are going to be fat and these are carbs and these are protein. So like, you're like picking apart the pieces of the recipe and you're like, that's a fat bomb. Mm -hmm. The education actually empowers people to make better decisions when they're at work events like that. Yeah. So like some people are like, you know, just write a meal plan for me. Right. But it doesn't give them the education that actually helps them in the long run to make the better decisions. hundred percent. I can even think of that situation. Like in the same work setting, um, they got chicken and ham. Mm. First thing you think is like higher fat protein source, lower fat protein source. Right. Right. But this ham is just sliced roast roasted ham. This chicken is chicken legs. It's fried. Mm. Now it's completely opposite. Right. That chicken is actually the lower protein chicken of the chicken, which is the legs. Right. And it's higher fat because it's brown meat versus white meat. And it's deep fried. Where this ham is sliced and roasted. So there's no deep frying. There's no oil. It's just it's fucking roasted ham. It's higher fat than a chicken breast. But like that's where if you, if you just say chicken good, you know, chicken's on my meal plan. This is the type of chicken. Right. Like I'm going to eat this. Like ham's not like I don't eat pork according to my coach. Right. That's an issue. You know what I mean? Right. Um, or if you're more in the paleo sphere and you're like thinking like, we just eat healthy foods and we're just going to use our handful portions and they go to eat that salad and they're like, I don't understand why I'm not losing weight. And it's like, well, you eat 200 grams of fat a day. Like, right. You're not in a deficit, you right. know? Um, and that's where I think like, even, even from the standpoint of people, people get into the weeds of uh, like general, general population people shouldn't be like tracking macros is too like OCD all this stuff and I'm like yeah but if you're like picking apart ingredients too much that could become OCD right. you know what I mean so like having an understanding and awareness of what the ingredients are as well as the macros associated with it we can go hey like nothing's off limits certain things are healthier than other things and the macros are just a budgeting system to allow me to fit in what I want to fit in within my calories and still accomplish my goals right because if you ask the paleo person who's not losing weight and it's like hey do you just love this the olives and almonds and, you know, olive oil and avocados that you eat yeah. so much that it's hard. And they're like, no, I just don't know what else to eat. There's, right. It's the healthy foods I'm allowed to eat. It's like, well, you're just not putting yourself in deficit. Right. You know what I mean? So you can eat, how about you eat oats and sweet and like rice? And they're like, oh, I can't because I'm paleo. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but you could save a lot of calories and lose weight. So right. um, the education piece is just so unbelievably important and it does empower people. Now I often tell people too, that's part of flexible dieting is, is people like, well, if I'm on this work event, I have to like estimate some of my foods or guesstimate whatever's out there. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but a good guess is better than winging it. And at the end of the day, tracking macros is guessing anyway, because like that four ounce chicken breast, that's two grams of fat and 26 grams of protein. We don't know for a fact that yeah. it's exactly that right. or that every four ounce chicken breast is exactly the same. And people think it sounds weird, but I've said it to so many clients and it clicks with them. It's like, do you think every chicken walked the earth and ate the same amount of food? Walked the same amount of steps, had the same amount of muscle, same amount of hydration, same amount of nutrients, same farm raised, same parents. We know genetics plays a big role. Yeah. And they like laugh and I'm like, 
But that's legit. Like that that chicken breast could be twenty three grams protein, could be thirty grams protein. Who fucking right. knows? Twenty six is a really good estimate. That's as good as you're gonna get. So trying to be when I set your your macros to one hundred eighty five grams of protein, and you think you need to be exactly one hundred eighty five. You're still not there. So you're right. creating an OCD tendency for no reason. You like it's, trimmed something off. Yeah, like. <laughs> exactly. Like I often say, like, don't throw the one blueberry out to hit 100 grams. Like yeah. it, it does not matter, you yeah. know. Um, that's part of flexible dieting too. Right. So. I was going to ask you, um, like around, like, do you know around what time frame you, have you always done flexible dieting or like been aware of flexible dieting? No, okay. not at all. What were you doing before? I tried everything, man. Um, so when I first got into all of this, I was trying to lose weight and I was 18 years old. Just, I graduated high school at 17. So I actually started trying to lose weight at 17. And the first one I did, uh, I just grabbed a men's health magazine. It was just like, I think it was Jay Cutler's diet or some shit, you know, okay. his cutting diet. Right. And, uh, cause I should be eating the same amount as a 300 pound steroid user bodybuilder <laughs> as a 17 year old who's never lifted. Um, and so I just started following that and it was basically just like eat brown rice, tilapia and asparagus four times a day that didn't last very long um especially because i didn't know how to cook and then the second one because i worked at a rided pharmacy they had those hcg things and it was basically like a droplet mm, yeah. you put this droplet yeah. in your tongue and then and it's funny because i'm like what those is that hot back then what did that shit even do i don't know because you look at the meal plan and you had to buy their special rice bars it's like a, a rectangle rice cake and you would eat those uh three times a day so that was like your first three meals and then your dinner was brown rice grilled chicken and a green vegetable of choice. I'm like, that dropped into shit. I was eating 800 calories a day. Right. That's it. And I lost hella weight. I lost like 30 pounds. Mm. Gained it all back real quick. Right. Um, then I started kind of getting with it a little bit. And I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about that. I'm going to start training. I didn't want to go to the gym because I was just intimidated by the gym. But then I started going to the gym and just trying to eat cleaner. And that's actually what worked. And I started, I, I would like, I subbed whatever cereal I was eating for special K. I stopped drinking regular pop I started drinking diet pop I stopped eating white bread I started eating whole wheat bread so some of it was probably I was actually just training hard and some of it was I was just I mean you go from fruit loops with two percent milk to special k with non-fat milk you're creating a deficit you know right. so I started losing weight that way um, and then I started going to school for it and shit and, and started like learning more um, the first like diet I followed after that point to try to get really lean was intermittent fasting actually and it was back when it was the warrior diet or the renegade diet by Jay Frugia um this is way before any of this shit was cool. Lean gains was like starting to arise. And that was like right. Martin Burham before he kind of like went off the face of the earth for a while. Um, and that worked super well for me. Again, it just managed my calories. I was able to eat. I, I mean, I would wake up, go to school, and then I would go straight from school to the gym to intern. And then I would go from the gym to Rite Aid to work and close threaded. So it just made sense. I was like, I'll just start eating after I'm done with school, which was at around like one. Right. 2 p.m. So I would finish, grab something on the go, which is like something from Super Subs, muscle milk and a protein bar. And then I would uh, eat something again right before I trained. I'd have a huge meal at night. Like that was just what I did. Right. And it worked. And then I tried to put clients on it and it didn't work for right. 75% of them. Um, and then I hired a bodybuilding coach to do a, uh, a prep. And I did 12-week prep, got absolutely shredded, but it was a meal plan. So when I adjusted or he adjusted the plan, it was like take oats out of meal one. Right. Or like one slice of bread instead of two. Right. right. But there was no macros associated with it. So I didn't right. understand what was going on. Right. Crushed it, got shredded, went on a cruise raft show, said, I'm good coach piece. Like I know what I'm doing now. Gained all of it back. And then that's mm. when I discovered uh, first Lane Norton, then Aerokelm. So I started researching because I was like, what the fuck's going on with my metabolism? Found uh, metabolic damage at the time. 
by Lane Norton. He was sitting by his pool. This was probably like 2012, I think, when he made those videos. And then that led me down a rabbit hole, found Eric Helms, Muscle Strength Pyramids on YouTube, like, way back. And then I just started going down this crazy right. rabbit hole, got certified with nutrition and stuff like that. And that's when I kind of discovered flexible dieting, gotcha. like the bodybuilding forums and shit like that. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, mine was like, mine was like, you know, Omar Isof, mm-hmm. uh, Matt Ogus. Yep. So like I found Elms through Ogus mm-hmm. and like before all those guys was the Hodge twins. Yep. Remember them? Yep. Um, and so when they were doing their version of flexible dieting, it was kind of like, Oh, we eat one fucking crappy meal, and then sometimes we pound some protein shakes. Yeah, and so my flexible dieting kind of looked like that. Yeah, a lot of people's did. Right, so like it was like one meal at Cheesecake Factory, and then fucking eight scoops of protein. Yeah, I don't know, it was something ridiculous. So mine was the opposite. I found Eric Helms, and I found Ogus through him. So like because mm. I went that route, I think it was a little bit di- different me because I remember seeing um, even this book right here on Aragon. Um, Eric Helms a little bit, but mainly it was like Alan Aragon and a couple other guys way back on the forums telling people that they could have a pear instead of a banana or chicken instead of tilapia. Like that was what flexible dieting was to bodybuilders. Yeah. So that's kind of how I interpreted it. I was like, right. oh, that meal plan I was following. Let me like, and I literally went back to the meal plan and I, I fucking entered everything into a spreadsheet of like, here's how many calories I was eating. And I went back to every adjustment my prep coach made to see the adjustments he made calorically. And it really panned out to like what you would do. You create a decent deficit at the beginning and then you adjust by like five to 10% every time you need to keep the weight loss going or add cardio. And once I understood the numbers, then I was like, okay, let me like, like I really got sick of that. Like, I I think it was tilapia at the time, to be honest with you. I was like, let me switch that for something else. And like, I started kind of seeing how that worked. Mm. And then I found people who were doing more like if it fits your macros on YouTube, you know, and like the Hodge twins or um, what was the, the other dude? Yeah, I think him and Matt Ogus had some like fake Chris beat. Chris Jones. Yes, yeah. um, Chris Jones. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just saw him upload a video the other day. Actually, I was like, "Damn, he's still out there." Yeah, I know. Yeah, but uh, then I started watching all that kind of stuff and and seeing what they were doing, and I didn't really buy into it because I had already I started with a better foundation. I think just because I found Eric Helms first. Yeah. Um, but then I found Ogus because he used to sit down with Eric and do those interviews and shit. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, it was yeah because like what I think Ogus like he attracted a lot of the people because he had yeah. this crazy six-pack transformation. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is what I did to get my six-pack. And then, like, you see Elms pop up, and he's like, he's he's helping him with nutrition. You're like, oh, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you're like, follow this guy. Yep. He must know what he's talking about. Yep. So, yeah, so I think, yeah, that was, that was kind of the route I went. Omar, like, had an evidence-based approach mm-hmm. um, to some degree. But so you're like, I'm getting a mixture of like a lot of the bro from like Chris Jones and the Hodge twins and they, they would claim to be like science based, but like a lot of it was not, they'd be like, Oh, this is what the scientists say. And then they do their thing. Yeah. So, um, but dude, all of it, like, I think, um, kind of early on was like, that was for me, like when everything was magic. Mm -hmm. Right. And so like they were also doing not just like, if it fits your macros, but they were also doing intermittent fasting. And they thought that like, that was for sure the reason they had lost their lower belly fat. Yeah. Well, because insulin sensitivity and, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, even I remember Poliquin even had some stuff out about like, like you're going to store more body fat around your midsection. If your insulin sen- sensitivity is poor, if you have high cortisol levels, a lot right. of like stuff that's just not really proven. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the cortisol stuff maybe, but you'd have to be like seriously fucked up with cortisol levels for that to be accurate. Mm. Um, and even with insulin sensitivity, it's the same thing. Like, but as you get leaner, doesn't doesn't it improve anyway? Bingo. Yeah. So there's no difference if you're if you're in a calorie deficit. Same thing with like uh, autophagy. People are like, mm. oh well, yeah, but intermittent fasting helps you live longer because autophagy. It's like, well, a calorie deficit creates autophagy. Right. So, do you still get autophagy if you're intermittent fasting? If you are in, a, in surplus? a surplus, yeah, they don't know because they haven't done that study yet. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like, I don't know. And there's, you know, if you look at blue zones and places where they live over 100 years old, they are typically eating less calories than the normal person. So it just shows that, like, although I think it's not good to be in a chronic deficit and it's not good to be in an aggressive deficit constantly, like we preach all the time, because it's a stress in the body. There's also reason to believe that, you know putting yourself into a deficit at periods of time, is that probably a really good thing? So like dieting once a year is not a bad idea. Right. And if you have really serious physical pursuits you want to put on a muscle, there might be a time where you got to wait because you need to gain all year round. Like that makes sense. But if we're just talking health, then I think having cycles of maintenance and deficits is actually important for health. You I know? think one last thing I wanted to jump in with you was kind of like so what kind of spurred all this? Um, why I wanted to hear from you was the fact that you were like, okay, like, yeah, like science might say like we should go longer sometimes with our diets and like other mm-hmm. times we can go a bit more aggressive and they're like this is why this has been my approach and like that selection process and like how you knew what to do for you. Yeah. And is there a way for somebody to implement that similar framework for themselves? It's like, okay, I need to know this about myself so that I can do X. And like maybe like again that also applies to like certain things you do in business where it's like, okay, right now I'm going to go really really hard. These other periods, I'm still going to go, but just, like, it's going to look like this instead. Yeah. I think that – so the the first one I'll attack is, like, the the overarching – like, for business and stuff like that, just the overarching theme. Um, you know, that's I've always been really big on, like, the four quadrants of life, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you want to call it body, being, balanced, business, fitness, faith, family, finance. Like, there's so many people that do this shit. But there's really just those, like, four pillars in your life that people focus on. One's your health, one is your mindset, your emotional well-being, spirituality, connection to God, whatever. One is going to be your relationships, whether it's a spouse or family or friends or whatever. And then one is going to be your business, your finances, your career, savings, so on and so forth. Um, In my experience, if you try to set big goals in every one of those areas, you're not going to accomplish any of them. Mm. Or they're just very small goals. And that's where like your standards are just too low. So I do think there's like this, there's this idea of like produce and protect. So it's like quarter one, maybe you set this huge goal for business and for your relationship, but it's like, Hey, like let's not diet right now, you know, (laughs) and let's not go on some like crazy spiritual retreat or try to find God. Like, let's just focus on these two things. And then maybe after you accomplish like, you know, uh, an amazing relationship and a huge business, you go into protection mode. It's like, okay, now I'm going to protect these two categories now I'm going to push my physical fitness and my spirituality, right? So we can categorize that. And that's kind of how it's always been for me. I mean, even like I just got as lean as I've ever gotten and I'm sustaining it pretty well. Um, I would say I'm like a little bit heavier than I was on my shoot, but the leanest I've been in a long time and I feel great, but like I wasn't full throttle on the business during that time intentionally. I was like, okay, well, how can we like just have fun with content? How can we refine systems? How can I like get back more to my team? Things that don't take a lot of brain power for me, but I know are important. Right. Um, and I'm not going to be mad if we don't see leaps and bounds in the business. Right. Um, and then there's other categories where I'm like every week I'm thinking of like just crazy unique ways to date my wife or give her gifts or leave her notes and like take Blakely for daddy daughter dates, stuff like that, putting a lot of effort and attention to my family. And then I'm cooling off on my physical fitness. Right. So I think there's definitely this ebb and flow with that. But when we think of this 
type of thing with a diet and how to approach that, um, there's less things to worry about. It's either do I like one, do I diet right now or not? But then after that, it's how do you know that if you should diet right now or not? That one is like, I mean, number one, going back to the first thing that I said, are you focusing on uh, all those categories, right? right? Is this a time where you can go into like that protection mode for the others? Like, Hey, like your career, your family, like all those, are those in a good place? And you can just like, they can maintain for the next three to six months, like however big your goal While is. You put these like other things on your Bingo. plate. Bingo. Yeah. You have other large habits that need to be in play mm-hmm. in order for you to do this. Yeah. Right? And they're going to take more time and attention from you. And if the answer is yes, great. Um, the other thing is going into like, how stressed are you? Obviously, if you're super stressed, you're not gonna be very successful, mm-hmm. whether that's in, in me and uh, Brand Roberts on my team did like a research review on um, does cortisol stop fat loss to stress stop fat loss. Um, cause there's like this thing where like once you, if your body's producing too much cortisol or stress, like you, you literally can't lose body fat. Mm-hmm. It's actually not true. Um, a big piece of it is one cortisol retains water. So a lot of times it's just masking the weight loss you're actually seeing. Right. And unless you can, you know, de-stress and flush out that water, you won't see the progress you're making. If you don't see the progress you're making, you're not motivated to continue. And then you just don't, right. you kind of give up. Right. right. And then the other side of it is that, um, higher stress levels, uh, poor sleep, higher cortisol, they induce cravings and overeating. So a lot of times it's not because you can't lose weight. It's because you can't stay consistent if you're constantly like triggered to overeat because cortisol is too high. Um, but nonetheless, you still like that's, and that goes back to the whole evidence-based thing. Well, evidence actually doesn't say that cortisol stops fat loss. Actually, it's a mobilizer. So it can actually be promotive of fat loss depending on how you're using it. And if you're able to trigger cortisol while you're training and when it's needed and then pull it back when you need to recover. However, like if stress is chronically high, you won't lose weight. So in one sense, it's true, but it's not true because of what people thought, you know, based on research. So those kind of things come into play of like whether you should diet or not period, you know, cause if you're stressed, your life doesn't support it, so on and so forth. Um, and then there's plenty of times too, where people will come to you, you know, and they're chronic dieters. It's like, you've just been dieting too much or you have body dysmorphia. Like you, you actually don't need to lose weight. You need to build muscle. And I see this mostly with women who have tried to lose weight constantly. And I'm like, you're not even overweight at all. Like yeah. you need to eat more food and lift heavy, stop doing cardio, stop dieting. Um, but then once we get into the diet, if somebody is like, Let's say they, they, we check off the box and we're like, yeah, you're, you're good to die. Let's do it. Um, should you go fast or slow is the next question, you know? And I think that I've changed my opinion on this over the years. I, we actually just literally aired a video on YouTube about this today as we're recording this. And like, there was a lot more research to support the idea of going slow because you're more likely to maintain muscle tissue, but there's more research coming out now that shows muscle t- like atrophy during diet is very hard. It's very difficult to actually accomplish. And a lot of it is, is glycogen depletion. Yeah. So a lot of what you lose muscle-wise during a diet usually is, is just going to be replenished as soon as you start actually eating food again and training properly. Um, so during the reverse or during refeed, stuff like that, and that's another reason why maybe those diet breaks and refeeds are important, you know. Um, but there was a recent study that I talked about in the video that had uh, a severe and a moderate deficit group um, the severe group did four months of like a very, very aggressive fat loss diet and then eight months of like slow and steady. So there was a 12 month study, which is really cool, but like four months of just grinding and then like pull back and just ease into it for the rest of the year. Whereas the moderate group just did slow and steady the whole time. And the group that did severe first actually lost more, uh, fat mass by double by the end of the year. And they didn't lose any more muscle tissue or strength at the end of it. They tested mm. everything because if you would have looked at the, like from what I could tell in their interpretation and I listened to a couple of people interpret it too, 
at the four-month cutoff after the aggressive phase, right. they did lose some, right. but they replenished it during the eight-month follow-up. Right. So by the end of it, they lost more fat right. and didn't lose anything. Yeah, what's the timeline that you're looking at? Exactly. Yeah. So if we do a three-month study and we go, oh, there you go, lose more fat. It's like, yeah, but... We've got our answer. Exactly. There's but with the your, evidence. <laughs> with, with your clients, right. you don't do that shit. Right, you know? exactly. They go through a three-month cut and then you help them after the three months. You right. know, So um, that's where things start to change. And uh, the only downside was like they saw a little bit more of like... Um, bone mineral density decrease in the hip. The, the caveat mm-hmm. is that the the participants were between 45 to 65 years old and they were postmenopausal. So women who have already gone through menopause, so you go, okay, does that have anything to do with the bone mineral density? Did they try to prevent the bone mineral density by food selection or supplementation? Probably not because uh, they weren't expecting it. Right. Now we have research, so we can't expect it. Right. And then the other side of it too is like, a 60-year-old, a 50-year-old, whatever woman going that is postmenopausal is like the prime candidate to probably lose muscle tissue during a, an aggressive diet. And if they didn't, right, I think we're good for most right. people. You know what I mean? Um, so I'm, I lean a little bit more towards rapid approaches now than I used to as long as I have enough time to help them reverse afterwards. Because mm-hmm. I think that, and again, at, at first we got to give them the options because some people's personality type just doesn't work well with that. Right. But more often than not, the intrinsic motivation of somebody is going to be greater if we give them fast results. Oh, yeah, because it, it, you end up talking somebody into a longer process than... Exactly. So if you go the first four weeks and you don't see anything, I mean, fuck, you got to notice something to keep yeah. going. You know. So yeah. I think that a big piece of it at, is just that. At the same time, if, if they're... It, like. If it's slower, but they are seeing something, they might be like, okay, well, you know, this feels easy right now. Mm-hmm. Versus, like, if you're putting their ass on... Yeah on fire out the gate. Yeah. And for some reason they didn't see it then mm-hmm. they're like, cause that, that happens too, where somebody's having a really hard time in the beginning. And then they're like, I don't know if I can, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. But you know, and I think, and this is where it's so different every person because, um, you know, some would argue that like, well, if you have a person that's hundred pounds overweight, fuck yeah, be aggressive. They're not gonna lose muscle. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, don't because they're not going to adhere to it. Right. And you don't need to. Right. You can just put them a little deaf. They're going to lose weight. Like right. it doesn't take much to get somebody to lose weight when they're hundred pounds overweight. Right. Um, and then you can think about the person who is 10 pounds away from being stage ready. Right. They're probably more likely to lose muscle tissue than somebody who's just generally losing fat. So right. do you still go fast? But at the same time, there's really no way to not be aggressive at that point because you're already Everything leaner than your body. percentage wise. Yeah, exactly. Like huge. You're already leaner than your body wants you to be anyway. So like, that's where a lot of it just kind of goes out the window. It's like, right. there's no perfect study. What, like one percentage point when you're that lean is like, it could be, sometimes it could be like a pound. Yeah. And it's noticeable. You right. Know? You like, lose oh. a quarter of a pound and you can notice it. <laughs> right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, it's hard to say. I, I am, uh, with a lot of the people we work with, I would, I call them like advanced gen pop. Mm. So typically they are general population, but they're into this stuff. They study, they've re- read my blogs. Yeah listen to the podcast. So they kind of like to geek out a little bit. Yep. They've been um, training for some amount of time. Exactly. Yeah. I typically like more of an aggressive approach at the beginning mm. and then pull back and, and ease into a slower reverse. Um, it just, so you'll it, just let them know how it's going to feel like yeah. to be aggressive early on. Yeah. Like, Hey, we're expecting this, but like, exactly. Yeah. And that's a big piece of the coaching process, right? Is right. mapping out the periodization plan and saying like, here's what we're doing. Here's what we expect. Here's how you're going to feel. Right. This is why we're doing it. Right. And when you give them the clear cut, pathway there's no resistance to it right. it's easy to adhere so a couple things kind of surrounding your entire thought process on on a lot of these things it's it a lot of them weren't like hey we might go counter to the research mm-hmm. it's like 
hey, how can we use what we know about people to get them closer to the research mm-hmm. in, in most cases? Yeah. That, that it didn't seem like you were like, ah, fuck science. Yeah. It, it was like, hey, like, we're going to do this thing that doesn't necessarily line up with the science, but it's in order to get you closer to the science. Like, yeah. the, like the drop set, like people not getting close enough to failure. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, we know that about a lot of people. Like, the science does suggest that. Yeah. That most people can't accurately, like, find out what their 10 rep max is, actually 0% of people in that study. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to do this thing that doesn't necessarily line up in the, with the science, but it's going to yeah. get you closer to actually lining up with the science. Yep. So um, yeah. it's, it's kind of interesting because it wasn't like, it's bro in the sense that it, it isn't hard hard to find in the science, but it was like, how do I get you closer yeah. to what the, no, the like science actually says? Non-scientific methods that inch you closer to the science, basically. And, right. and even like with, like like, I think a big piece of it too is, I try to look at the research and pick apart the things that actually matter where a lot of people just take it as like a blanket statement, you know? So like even I remember when the Matador study came out as a nutrition coach, everybody was hyped up. It was like, oh, this is the way you diet. Two weeks on, two weeks off. Like this is it. But then you start picking it apart and you're like, yeah, but the two weeks on, two weeks off had to diet for 32 weeks versus 16 weeks. So really is it like, like even if they got better results, how many people can you commit to eight months of dieting? Like that's a long fucking time, Mm -hmm. you know? So then you start thinking about that and then you go, okay, well, does it have to be two weeks on, two weeks off, right? Can it be two weeks on, one week off, two, three weeks on, one week off? Can right. it just be like two days in a row every, every couple of weeks? Like right. what about this is what they were trying to focus on making beneficial? Right. How can I manipulate that to still abide by the science, but do it in a more practical way for the person? Right. You know, and that's where it was like, I started using one week diet breaks whenever I felt it was necessary. Right. It could be like at first it was every 12 weeks and then it was like, you know, or sorry, 12 weeks would be a long time, but let's say it was after like six or seven weeks. And then it was after like four or five weeks. Then it was after like three weeks. And eventually it's like every week you have a two or three day refeed because you need it and you're getting leaner and it's necessary. You know, there's no hard rules to this stuff. Right. And then as it pertained to kind of intensity surrounding like your approach to certain things, like whether to cut fast or whether knowing or not, like this is a good period to diet. It was kind of like, Hey, like, does this line up with the other things in my life? You had a holistic view. You're not just looking at just like, Oh, because I am a nutrition coach. I'm just going to look at the nutrition piece. Mm -hmm. It's, it was kind of like, Hey, like what's going on in your life? Is this actually going to be a reasonable time for you to commit to this? Yeah. Um, and then, um, then like being like, okay, well now that I know that I can do that, here are some strategies and like looking at lifestyle factors, like when they work, when they're hungry, yeah. like actually getting to know them. And these are things that people could do with themselves to like understand that. But like, if you don't know the appropriate questions to ask yourself, it can be incredibly difficult. Yeah. That's why a lot of people run in circles and they don't find the strategies that work for them as opposed to coming to, you know, coaches like us that like can put them through that process. And then they're like, now going in the right direction it's emotional intelligence right you now this is why like as a coach you got to know more than just what their goal is and what time they show up to the gym right you know what i mean i think a lot of people are like oh that's out of my scope of practice <laughs> nothing is out of my scope of practice to talk about i might not prescribe you something because i can't <laughs> but like i always did that was always so funny I me mean, people are like well i'm not a therapist it's kind of out of my scope of practice i'm like i'm i'm a great listener i can listen to anything what is therapy i've right. been it's right. fucking listening and you're not necessarily telling, like, you're not always telling somebody what to do. You're mm-hmm. providing a, you're like, hey, you know, based on what I'm hearing, these sound like they could be potentially good options. Yeah. How do you feel about them? Yeah. You know, and you're a like, lot of times they find the answer. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's how therapy was too. I never got an answer from my therapist. It was just like, by the end of it, I was like, oh, well, there it is. I got my answer. I told you. 
Thank, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for pulling that out of me. Right, yeah. That's not how my scope practice. Right. You know, so, um, I and I think that's what being evidence-based is. It's taking, like, being in the trenches, the art of coaching, emotional intelligence, working with people hands-on, real people, and bridging that to the to science, right. like actual research. When those things come together, that is evidence-based. Right. Dude, so, that was, I mean, you answered my questions. Dope. Yeah. Yeah, that was really, really good, man. Um, I'm stoked. To get this done, I'm glad you came here to do it. Of course. So, yeah. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for being on mine because this will go on both. Yeah, uh, it was awesome, man. Thank you so much.